Thank you, Steve. I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, which if you were here last week, will look a little bit familiar. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll start at verse 12 and skip around a bit, but 1 Corinthians 15, that's on page 933, if you're following along in the Bibles in the pews. And just a, a bit of a roadmap for where we're heading. So as we've mentioned a couple times, we're in a sermon series talking about the Holy Spirit right now. Um, this is the second to last sermon in this series, but we do have to take a little break from this series. That's because next week I will be gone on vacation visiting some friends in Canada. And then the week after that, uh, we've got our all-church camping trip, which my family and I will be at as well. So we'll take a two-week break from this series, and I'll be back uh, after those two weeks, and we'll wrap up this series on the second to last Sunday of August. We'll have a one-off uh, sermon in there, and there that's just on kind of a topic that I find interesting, um, and uh, one of uh, Jesus' experiences in the Gospels. And then from there, what we're going to do in September is we are going to launch into a four-week series talking about discipleship and what it means to be a disciple or a follower, an apprentice of Jesus Christ. And the reason why we're doing that is to kind of set up something new that we're going to be doing. It's new and old that we're going to be launching here at Ivanrest in the fall. And that's because we're going to be relaunching our small group ministry structure here at Ivanrest. Now, Ivanrest has actually had small groups for quite a long time uh, here in our church, but for a whole number of reasons, especially during COVID, a number of those groups disbanded and fell apart. And there are also just a number of us who are new here and have never been part of a small group uh, sort of setting here at Ivanrest before. So we're going to be relaunching that structure. We're calling them table groups. If you're already in a small group here, don't worry. Uh, you can certainly continue to go on as you normally would and as you've been doing in your small groups. But we see it as really important for us as brothers and sisters in Christ to be getting together in a small group sort of setting to grow in our faith. And there's a good reason, I think, why we think that's important. And this is it. It's really revolutionary. That's how Jesus did it, okay? If you think about his ministry, much of it was with a small group of 12 disciples where he invested in those disciples. He taught them about what it looked like to follow him. Uh, they walked with him. They talked with him. They lived life uh, in a day-to-day -day way with him. And that's what we see the benefit of a small group structure being here in our own church community as well. And so that's what that series in September is going to be all about is what does it look like to be a disciple as a, sort of a push and kind of casting a vision for that that ministry which we're relaunching here at Ivanrest. So just wanted to give you a little bit of a roadmap for where we're heading going forward. Today, though, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and again, we'll start at verse 12. We'll skip around a little bit, but I'll cue you into that. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the disciples in Corinth back then, as well as to us as Christian disciples today. He says, but if it is, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 
then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If it is only for this life that we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For just as death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead must also come through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all power, authority, and dominion. For he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then skipping down to verse 35, Paul continues. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what sort of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish another. And there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is of another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and stars another, and star also differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so will we bear the image of the heavenly man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, a few weeks ago I was talking with a friend of mine. Uh, given that both of us are parents of young kids, though we only had a short amount of time to talk. And so after a bit I said, uh, hey, I'd love to keep this conversation going, but I actually have to go. Can we pick this up again some other time? Sure, my friend said, I've actually got to go too. Uh, how about we talk more about this next week? I said, that sounds great, and we made plans to pick the conversation back up where we'd left it the following week. Well, in the same way, I feel like we're continuing a conversation this morning that we started last week, too. You see, we're in a series on the Holy Spirit here at Ivanrest at the moment, and as part of that, we've been looking at those closing lines of the Apostles' Creed, which we recited just a bit ago. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, the reason why we're looking at those lines, and we've talked about this a few times during this series already, is because those lines, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, all detail or describe some aspect or work of the Holy Spirit. 
And so as we've tried to understand and appreciate the Holy Spirit better in this series, we've been working our way through each of those lines, studying them one by one and seeking to grasp what the Holy Spirit does as well as as how he operates or functions both in our individual lives as Christians, but also in the church as a whole. And today, we're on the last one of those lines, the life everlasting. And like I did with my friend a few weeks ago, we're actually going to pick things right back up where we left them last week. Now, originally, I had a different text uh, for this sermon. Uh, In fact, I'd even started commentary work on it. But when I was writing last week's sermon on the resurrection of the body, I realized that this passage would work for this sermon too. And so I decided that rather than picking a different text to talk about this morning, we would simply continue with this one, the same passage as last week, and dive deeper into it, unpacking it not just for what it has to say about the resurrection of our bodies, but the life everlasting too. And let's start with some definitions. For starters, what is the life everlasting? What does that mean? What does that look like? What does that entail? Well, put simply, the life everlasting is the life that we, believers in Jesus Christ, will live in eternity, in heaven, or whatever you want to call it, with Jesus Christ. It's the afterlife, the life to come, life after death. That's the life everlasting. And we have some pretty ingrained images for what that will be and look like, right? After all, when we think of the life everlasting, eternal life in heaven, there are some standard stereotypes or ideas that tend to come to mind, right? For instance, I don't, I don't know about you, uh, but I remember growing up in the church and thinking about heaven as sort of this otherworldly cloud city where everything would be made of crystal and gold and it would all be super shiny and full of light. Any of you sort of grow up with those images of heaven? Just me, okay, cool. Um, the rest of this sermon is gonna be pointless. Uh, And then I used to think, the way I used to imagine is that in the middle of that shiny cloud city, there would be this gigantic throne where God would sit and rule over all his creation. And everlasting life then, the life everlasting, the life that we would live in that heavenly cloud city would simply be one long worship service where all of us who ended up there someday would gather around that throne and just praise and sing to God endlessly for all of eternity. And it all just sounded so boring. Any of you feel that way? You can actually put your hands up in church. It's okay. That's not bad. Um, I mean, that, you just sort of feel underwhelmed by that, right? By descriptions of heaven that way. I, I would feel unenthused by this idea of eternity, concerned that maybe the life everlasting as one long unending church service wasn't going to be all it was cracked up to be. And that's how I felt. I mean, I'm a pastor, okay? I like long church services. That's why I keep keeping you here too long week after week, right? And so if that's even how I as a pastor felt and how other Christians feel about that understanding of the life everlasting, then I guess it's a good thing that that's not really how the Bible talks about the life everlasting or heaven. You see, most of our images of heaven these days, including what our life will be like there, come from pop culture depictions of it. 
For instance, that's actually where we get a lot of those ideas about things like cloud cities, golden streets, harps, and angel wings. Those are all images from things like Philadelphia cream cheese commercials, uh, television shows, even the one that my family would watch every single Christmas, It's a Wonderful Life, right? And while those images are, to a degree, based at least loosely on some of what Scripture says about heaven and the life everlasting, the truth is they're far more fancy and fantasy than actual good biblical theology. That's because, like a lot of other wrong-headed theology, those depictions of heaven and the life everlasting take bits and pieces of Scripture here and there out of context and develop them into a theology that, while interesting and entertaining, ignores large chunks of the rest of what the Bible says. And so when it comes to the life everlasting, to eternal life and to heaven, what does the Bible actually say? Well, contrary to how we often think about it, and this might come as a surprise to some of you because the truth is, like me, many of us are steeped in our cultural images of heaven from a very early age. The Bible actually describes heaven as this world restored. This world restored. In fact, scripture even gives a name for it. And calls it the, the new earth or the new creation. And the picture that the Bible gives us is of this world, this earth, this creation restored, renewed, and made the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. That's heaven, the Bible says. This world, the way God meant it to be when he made it, made that way again. Eternal life then the life everlasting is simply what our life will be like in that renewed, restored creation, which if you ask me, seems a lot more compelling than just sitting on a cloud playing a harp and eating Philadelphia cream cheese. Don't take my word for it though. Like I said, if we're gonna understand what heaven and the life everlasting really looks like, then we need to look at the Bible, not just what I think. And so let's do that. Let's look at the Bible, and let's actually start in the Old Testament with one of the prophets, Isaiah, in Isaiah 65. Now, Isaiah 65 is kind of an interesting chapter. Uh, first, it's right towards the end of the book of Isaiah. It's actually the second to last chapter in that book. And to be honest, it's kind of bipolar. It sort of goes back and forth. That's because while the first half of the chapter is all about God's judgment, his punishment, and his retribution towards the people of Israel for their unfaithfulness to him, the second half of the chapter is a hopeful, stirring, encouraging look to the future. You see, at verse 17, the tone of this chapter shifts. And rather than continuing to promise judgment in response to his people Israel's sins, which they deserve, by the way, they'd been sinning a lot, God starts instead to offer them some hope. And this is interesting because he roots that hope in creation. In verse 17, God says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. In other words, what God tells his people there is that he's going to make something new. Out of the brokenness, out of the fragments, out of the ruptured remnants of his fallen creation, God's response to our sin as human beings and the brokenness of this world will be to put it back together and restore it to its former glory. 
Remember, God originally made this world good, right? We talked about this last week. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and then six times he says over and over, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then at the very end, he caps it all off by saying, it is very good. The sad reality, though, is that because of our sin and our rebellion against him, this world isn't good anymore. Our disobedience, our arrogant attempts to follow our own will over God's, in short, have trashed, destroyed, and ruined both this good world that God made as well as us as human beings. And yet God didn't turn his back on us. Instead, he made us a promise. One day, He said, I will send you a savior. One day I will redeem you. One day I will restore this good creation and make it good again. And that's what Isaiah 65 is promising. It's promising that restoration. It's promising that God will do what he said he would do in the beginning by promising us a savior. It's promising that one day God will restore his creation, recreate it, and make it new just like he intended it to be in the beginning when it really was new. That's what Isaiah 65 is about. That's the hope that it offers. That's the picture that it gives us of heaven. This world restored and made right. That's not the only passage that gives us that picture, though. Uh, For instance, the next chapter, Isaiah 66, says the same thing. So does Peter in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 3. Peter himself also writes about this in 2 Peter 3. Paul gives a compelling vision of it in Colossians 1. And John, in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, the last two chapters of the Bible, sketches this vision of a restored creation out in great detail. So there's some pretty solid biblical backing for this idea of heaven as new creation. But I also just think it makes sense. After all, given what we know about God, his his demeanor, his character, his attributes, what he's like, which do you think is more likely? That God, in response to the fall of his creation, which he lovingly and carefully fashioned and made, is one day going to destroy, demolish, and obliterate that creation? or that he's going to work to redeem, restore, and renew it. Given what we know about God, which do you think is more likely? I think it's option two. And I also think that's the option scripture more consistently shows us. Not a picture of heaven and the life everlasting and as some disembodied cloud existence where we all play harps, but rather as a real human life lived here in the world God made, the way he made it, just like he meant it to be when he made it. But that does beg a question. What will life everlasting in that new creation be like? And again, Isaiah 65 gives us a picture. That's because picking it up in the next verse, verse 18, it says, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. 
They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's the life everlasting. It will be a life, an eternity one day after the next, of rejoicing, delight, and joy. There will be no weeping, no crying, no short-lived days or lives cut short. Instead, there will be abundance, bounty, justice, and peace. Blessing upon blessing will flow from God's hand to his people. He will call and they will hear. He will speak and they will listen. Even the enemies and antagonists of the animal kingdom will lie down together and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Can you see it? It's an image, a picture, a depiction of creation at rest, creation restored, creation the way God meant it to be when he fashioned and made it, and it's beautiful. I already mentioned this, but the Apostle John echoes that same beauty in the conclusion to his book, Revelation. It's because in chapter 21, he writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and and true. And a chapter later, John goes on. He says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On either side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Again, it's an image, both of those chapters, an image of goodness, an image of of abundance, an image of close proximity to the presence of God, an image of blessing. In other words, what it's an image of is it's an image of the world as it would be if we had never fallen into sin. And my friends, that's the image that the Bible gives us of what the world will be like for the rest of eternity too. 
Which brings us back to our passage for this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. After all, what does Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21 and all this talk about the new creation have to do with the Holy Spirit and the resurrection and everything else that the Apostle Paul talks about here in this passage? Well, quite a bit, actually. That's because it's not just this world, this creation, this earth that will be renewed, restored, and recreated. It's us, too. You see, this world isn't the only thing that's going to need some changing, some tweaking, some transforming to get it ready for God's new creation. We will, too. Specifically, our bodies will. And that's what the Apostle Paul, the author of this passage, is getting at in the second half of what he writes here. He's trying to describe what our experience, our life, our bodily existence will be like in God's renewed, restored world. As he writes in verses 35 through 44 here, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Put simply, what Paul is saying there, what he's trying to describe, is how we will be transformed. Our bodies, fit for this life but not for that one, will be refitted and renewed for that life, the life to come, the life everlasting. Like a seed growing into a plant, Paul says that our bodies, right down to our very bones, our DNA, our basic building blocks of life, will be transformed and made ready for the life to come in God's new creation. And this, Paul says, is a work of the Holy Spirit. Sown a perishable body, he tells us, we will be raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor, we will be raised in glory. Sown in weakness, we will be raised in power. Sown in a natural body, we will be raised in a spiritual body. And it is the Holy Spirit that powers and affects that transformation in us. He will renew us inside and out so that we are ready for life in God's new creation. I like how N.T. Wright tries to describe this in his commentary on this passage. Talking about how car companies are always searching for new ways to power our vehicles, he says that we need something new, something different, something renewable, if you will, to power us in the new creation too. After all, our bodies in this world, they break down, right? They get old. They hurt, they fail us, but our bodies in the new creation, our spiritual bodies won't. 
They won't get old, won't hurt, won't fail us. Instead, just like the rest of God's new creation, they will be the way they were meant to be, the way God intended, the way he created them to be in the beginning. And that's because, right, says they will be powered not by whatever it is they are powered by in this life, but instead by the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, like we said, God made this world good, right? And he made us good too. But because of our sin and our arrogance, neither we nor this world are good anymore. And so God, through his son Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit, has been in the process of making us good again. And one day, in the future, at a time that only God the Father knows, he will finish that work. He will renew us top to bottom, inside and out, physically and spiritually, and powered by the Holy Spirit fully and completely, we will live out our existence in eternity just the way God intended in his new creation. This, like all things, is an act of God's grace. And as Christians, it is our firm and steadfast hope, a hope guaranteed to us by none other than the Holy Spirit himself. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, you did not make either us or this creation this way. We have grown so used to this creation and to even us ourselves this way that sometimes we forget that. But Lord, you are always in the work and the process of redemption and restoration and renewal. We get to see glimpses of that in this life and in our own lives. But Lord, we look forward to and anticipate the day when you will bring that, cre- that new creation, that work of new creation to completion. Give us strong, deep-seated, firm hope. Help us look ahead to that day and help us to trust you in the meantime. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.